Welcome to 7-Minute Torah with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Thanks for tuning in and being part of the conversation. Welcome. This week's parsha is called Shoftim. Shoftim means judges, which is an appropriate name because this parsha is about judges and different types of leaders. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, until chapter 21, verse 9. This parsha is part of Moses' overall project of describing for the people what their society ought to look like. And specifically here, he gets into the roles of different kinds of leaders in ancient Israel. Priests, prophets, kings, and judges. He'll describe the role of each of these leaders. He'll teach the people that their leaders should lead with justice and righteousness. One of the central lines here is Deuteronomy 16.20, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, Justice, Justice, Shall You Pursue. My guest this week is Anya Kamenetz. Anya is a journalist and a writer. She's an education correspondent for National Public Radio, and she's written four books on various aspects of education, parenting, policy, always with an eye towards social justice. She's also an old friend of mine, as you'll hear during the interview. Anya, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Rabbi Micah. It's Micah. We've known each other for over 30 years. I think it'll be okay. I feel like the novelty of Rabbi Micah, but okay. So I have to tell you, I'm nervous. I usually just interview rabbis, but you're an actual radio person. <laughs> um, you're doing great so far. There's really nothing to it. Anybody can have a podcast. Yeah, that seems clear. That's why I'm here. So let's talk first about the Parshat. But we're reading this week from Parshat Shoftim, which is about leadership. And you had said before that you really wanted to talk about the chapter on on prophecy. Mm-hmm. So what interests you about that particular section? So what struck me um, in this whole portion is that it's sort of different ways of, of mitigating the effect of, um, of power in society, right? So like one form of power in society is violence and making people do things. And another form of, poly- of power is communication, you know, telling people what to do or saying what's going to happen and making these decrees. And then um, you know, there's there's an incident in in the parsha where it's like, okay, like sometimes one person's word can be enough to put someone else to death. Um, and actually, you shouldn't do that, right? You should you should have corroborating evidence. So we need mm-hmm. these kinds of rules and laws and structures to guide us because, you know, authority comes from all different kinds of places. And I mean, ideally, authority, I guess, in this in this portion and in the Bible in general, comes from God, but. But on earth, people are enacting power in different ways. And so how do we kind of mitigate that or make sure that it's, ha- it's coming from a good place? Mm-hmm. And, and what you see here actually is a kind of separation of powers where you have different kinds of leaders who have different types of authority. And actually, to your point about, I guess, the source of authority, there's a section earlier in the Parsha that's called the Law of the King, Chok in Hebrew, which says that the king, the Jewish king should be different. 
They're not supposed to be a god, unlike the pharaoh or the Babylonian emperor. They're not a god. They don't have absolute power. They're actually supposed to have the Torah beside them and to be read to from from this teaching so that they are leading the people in an ethical in an ethical way. So there is some kind of a sense here that leaders should be thoughtful. Leaders should be subject to the law in some form, which is long before the Declaration of Independence, right, or any kind of modern thinking, and that leaders should be leading the people with justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's something in there about you, you should enrich yourself, right? If you're if you're a leader, you shouldn't be um, doing various things to make a lot of money through through that. Um, and I think that's really important too, as, as a kind of restraint. Um, but you know, I so part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about the there is a prohibition on soothsayers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason is I don't know if you remember this, but we were in confirmation class together. I do um, do. <laughs> and at that time, I was like a little bit of a hippie kid, and I was totally interested in soothsaying. Like I was, uh, I did palm reading. I think I even did palm reading at a Purim carnival one time. I was like in the rabbi's library doing palm reading, but. I remember kind of grappling with this because it was one of the first times I think that I'd come across um, a passage that kind of directly contradicted. I was like, oh no, like this thing that I like doing and I'm interested in doing is something that you're like explicitly not supposed to do. And, you know, I just wanted to ask where you, what you thought about that and what do you think about like different modes of knowledge as people bring them in? Because obviously in the world we're living in, there's a lot of syncretism, people bringing lots of different kinds of, of knowledge and ritual and, and mysticism. First of all, I, I do vaguely remember you reading poems at uh, the Purim Spiel that year. I think, you know, it's interesting that the Torah has this deep discomfort with, with magic and prophecy, mm-hmm. and yet it also has various kinds of magic and prophecy. So in the very same chapter, the Torah essentially says something like, don't turn to magicians and be really careful about prophets, but also here are the prophets you should listen to. And so the, the, the text makes it about where does, this, where does the information come from? Um, it, if it comes from God, then you're okay. If it doesn't come from God, then you should be really careful. But then how are you supposed to know that? Here we are liberal Jews, and I'm not sure we believe that anybody speaks for God exactly in that way. I don't think God works that way. I don't know if you're still reading poems these days. <laughs> um, yeah, I do, I do, and I read and I read tarot now too. Um, but I think it just strikes me that it, it really speaks to the moment that we're in because we're in kind of a toxic disinformation, misinformation world. And we're also in a world of overwhelming amounts of information, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are kind of giving heuristics about like, what are, you know, where does the information come from? How do you make decisions? Um, how do you judge the people that are telling you these things? And I guess there's one good piece of advice in there, which is like, if a prophet's words come to pass, then that's a good prophet, right? Right. That is what it says. But there's a real problem with that statement. Tell me. Well, the problem is that, well, there's two problems. Problem number one, how do I know whether the prophet's words will come to pass when I'm just hearing them deliver their words? In advance, you don't, no. Right. And problem number two is that that's actually not true. So think about Jonah. We're coming up on Yom Kippur. Jonah is a great prophet. Uh, He's called by God to go to the people of Nineveh and tell them to change their ways. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He declares, God is going to destroy the city. You'd better change your ways. And then what happens? God doesn't destroy the city. The people change their ways and Jonah's prophecy actually doesn't come to pass. So one of the problems of the prophet is actually that if the prophet does their job right, they make themselves wrong. 
They warn people about what's coming. They warn people about what's hard, what's difficult, what's challenging in society, hopefully with the goal of having people change their ways, which means actually the Torah, I, I wonder if I'm going to get struck by lightning right now. The Torah kind of gets it wrong here because you can't judge a prophet or a leader by whether they can predict the future. In fact, the I think it's maybe the prophet Jeremiah who says something like, this is from the Eitz Chaim, which is the conservative movement's commentary, who essentially quotes Jeremiah in saying, if the prophet's message is a hard one to deliver, if it's a challenging message, then it's more likely to be true, as opposed to a prophet who's here to tell you that you're doing fine, everything's fine. Because mostly, while we do lots of things fine, there's plenty that we don't do fine. And the role of the prophet is maybe to shake us up maybe to help us think about what we could be doing better. Maybe that's how you're supposed to judge sources of information. I think that, I mean, that speaks to our moment so strongly, right? Because in, in the whole situation of this public health crisis, there have been all these issues around, you know, people making forecasts and then the forecasts do or don't come to pass. And then, you know, it com- becomes increasingly hard to deliver bad news and people don't want to hear it anymore. Um, and so, and then people are being judged based on their past predictions where, every decision that we're making every day is in fact influencing that future. Um, right. And often we're learning new things all the time. Right. And, and, you know, and so I think this, um, the guidance in this portion really kind of speaks to this because it's like, there's a number of different filters and tests that we are being asked to apply um, around, you know, people who are saying what's going to happen or what to pay attention to. Sometimes you just have to trust because you don't have the authority, right? You're like, Someone else has a PhD in this and I definitely do not. So I need to listen. Other times you need to listen to your intuition, but then there are plenty of people out there who say, you know, I don't want to get the vaccine because my gut tells me not to, or like I prayed on it and it said not to, you know, God said not to do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so the role of faith versus the role of, um, well, faith in yourself versus faith in authorities and who is a real authority. uh, I think those are all like, you know, they're still really, really hard problems. Maybe some of it comes down to values. I think the role of the prophet is actually to remind you of your own values. Prophets are not scientists, right? They 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 can't say the the vaccine will work versus the vaccine won't work. They their their role really is to remind you of who you are and what you believe, and to remind you that you have a responsibility to act on what you believe. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I also think there's um, there's certain kind of home truths that have helped me through the pandemic, which are kind of like, you know, who, whose voices are not being heard in this situation, who are potentially the the weak people whose interests are being overlooked and how do we make sure that things are as fair as possible, even if we don't know everything. One thing we do know is that we have to take care of the people that are less, you know, powerful than we are. Right. I really agree. There's a, another quote I was thinking about, which was actually said originally about journalists, but it's often applied to religion also. So, you know, what you do and what I do, which is that the role of journalism, and we could say the role of the rabbis also, is to, um, is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. Oh, before. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And so maybe that's what we all need. We all need a little bit of comfort and a little bit of affliction. We're, we're living in a hard world, and it's been a very hard year and a half. And so we do need that sense of comfort. But at the same time, we need to be afflicted because we need to remember that we actually have to do things differently if we want there to be different outcomes in the end. Yeah, I love that. My deep thanks to Anya Kamenitz for joining me to talk about Parshat Shoftim. There's more to come in the bonus interview if you'd like to stick around. Thanks for listening. 
Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. So I want to thank you for your wisdom on, on this week's Parsha, and you've given us all a lot to think about. Let's talk a little bit about you. I know you are an NPR correspondent um, on education, and you write especially on education, and your four and almost five books have been all about various aspects of education, student loans, innovation, screen time, standardized testing, things like that. So I know you have another book out, will you, or another book coming out, will you tell us what you're working on? Yeah, thanks, Micah. Yeah, so uh, I am writing a book, and the working title is The Stolen Year, and it is about children's experiences during COVID. And so I followed a few families in depth um, for several months and, and, and also met them in person once, the, once we had vaccines um, from all over the country. And I talked to many, many more people. And I'm just trying to put a, hang a light on, you know, what happened when we kind of failed to prioritize kids, mostly in the United States, but really all over the world and how the polarization of the response to the pandemic has impacted kids and how what other disasters, including Katrina, which, um, you know, we both have been affected by in different ways, um, what they can tell us too about what we're likely to see unfold under the ne- over the next decade or so with, with this generation. And are you finding that these families you followed, did they have similar experiences during the pandemic? Uh, it's so interesting because, you know, they're, they're very, very different. Like there's a mom of five in rural Oklahoma and there's a, a doctor in New York city who's raising her kids in like a fancy brownstone with an au pair. And there's, um, a mo- you know, a mother of two married mother of two, who's a black woman living in, in sort of public housing in Washington, DC. So, uh, but the lack of school affected everyone really strongly, the mental health, the um, the way that domestic responsibilities fell more on women and the stresses that those women felt, um, the way the kids kind of languished, um, especially if, if those kids had special needs a lot of the time on special education sure. um, and, and felt kind of, you know, the, the loss of school, I think, is the most central fact of it, right? Just like that convening and that social um, institution and what we all kind of took for granted um, kind of just the, felt like the center was knocked out. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of commonalities and I think as I'm starting to wrap up the book now, I also feel compelled to say, and this is going to make me kind of go back and rewrite, I think a while is to say that like, they all survived, you know, they all discovered resilience. They all discovered silver linings in their experience. And, you know, we can't, although I feel like a huge injustice was perpetrated on children, um, you also can't deny them the opportunity to make the best of what happened and kind of tell their own stories ultimately that, you know, of the way that they grew through this. And I think mm-hmm. that would be kind of important as well. Well, and that applies to adults also. I mean, I know you're writing about children, but I think the dual story of this pandemic has been suffering and resiliency. I'm working on a high holiday sermon right now as well that you know I'll deliver on Rosh Hashanah, which is very much about the ways that we are rethinking our lives during this pandemic, that people are rethinking their their jobs and their families and where they live and how they how how they and, and the choices that they make. And I think we've learned a lot over this past year and a half. I don't know if we yet know how to apply those learnings to make the world a better place. 
so to speak. But I think the resiliency has been one of the real stories of of this past year and a half. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think, you know, if I would say like, I think my book has a real Yonki horror side to it in the sense that like, there needs to be a confession, there needs to be a reckoning, we need to figure out what the restitution is going to be, you can't get forgiveness until there's restitution, like, all of that, I find very, very important. Um, and kind of in my role to to afflict the comfortable, right? But then in the comfort, the afflicted side on the on the Rosh Hashanah side of things of like, yeah, there is sweetness to discover here. And yes, like there are always, um, you know, rewards and, you know, truly just, um, you know, being able to live through a time when we recognize what was most essential, I think it's something that I'm, I'm certainly going to carry with me. Mm-hmm. So you, you preempted my next question a little bit. I was going to ask you, how does your your Jewishness or your Jewish values influence, or does it influence what you write, how how you approach journalism and the work that you do? I mean, I think I think in every possible way, you know, it's just um, it's something that's really kind of baked into me. Big picture, I would say this: I think that um, identity is a really key filter for understanding American politics, society, morality right now. So um, Black Lives Matter protests, white supremacists, like just understanding where people are coming from and where they're rooted in and how that connects to the American story. And so I think for me, being authentically Jewish and, and, and kind of expressing that the way that I was raised, the people I was raised around, um, you know, it, it, it adds a grounding to me that it helps me meet other people where they are, where I can bridge differences. If I, you know, if I walk into, you know, a school in South Carolina or, um, you know, a protest somewhere, like everybody's coming from different places. I'm not going to, I'm not going to assimilate or, you know, seem like I'm blending in. I need to be very clear about who I am and then who the people are that I'm talking to. And I think for me that, that really informs my approach to journalism almost more than anything else. Is that like, I am like, I, I understand who I am and that helps me understand who other people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are living, you and I live in different countries, but of course I come from the U S also, and we are living in these countries that really are cultural and identity mosaics in all kinds of ways that to be American or to be Canadian is actually to, um, to have a variety of, of identities and to come to, to come to our national identity from a place of where do I come from and what are the values that I was raised with. I I had an article recently in Tablet Magazine about my quote-unquote conversion to Canadian. I became a Canadian yeah. citizen nice. three, four months ago. Um, I'm American also, but now, but now Canadian as well. And one of the things that I really discovered in that process was actually exactly what you're describing that for me being canadian is very much about bringing who i am and what i've always been to this um to this mosaic this mosaic of a country that i live in that uh, you know and i i was on the toronto subway yesterday and i'm str- every time I'm on the su- i'm on the subway i am struck by just the incredible diversity of the people that i see around me and you live in new york city so i imagine that you see the exact same thing around you all the time so that to be an american to be a canadian is actually to bring the identities that we that we come with to solving the problems of the nation so when we talk about education when we talk about um, when we talk about equality when we talk about racism that everyone brings their own experience to it, their own identity, as you're describing. And ultimately, those identities have to be part of the conversation 
that we're having with one another. We can't actually address these national problems without understanding what individual people are bringing to it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I mean, my dad always likes to say you can't write poetry in Esperanto. So like in order for people to, you know, Esperanto being like the universal language, Mm -hmm. right? So like in order for people to truly express who they are, um, that requires particularity. And um, I think that's really true, you know? I mean, I could also, I could talk forever about like specific Jewish values and how they inform the work that I try to do, but um, you know, but, but the big picture I think is, is really there that just like being who I am. So let me ask you a couple of Jewish questions then, since we're talking about Judaism and you, you and your family's connection to Judaism, are there any particular Jewish rituals or practices that you have found, um, that you found meaning in? Yeah. I mean, we have a Friday night ritual that, um, that's, you know, pretty well established. We, um, we light candles, we say Kiddush, we say a blessing with the kids where we kind of just talk about something that's good that happened that week that we're proud of. Um, and, um, I got into baking challah during the pandemic. So Hmm. that's good. And that's, um, we have also a Seder. We've been hosting a Seder for gosh, like 14 or 15 years. Um, so it's amazing how these things happen, but we have a, a Haggadah that we made and we have, you know, certain people that have been there for, you know, more like t- more than 10 years. And um, we have the kids acted out. They act out the story together and with costumes and everything, um, which is super fun. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we really try to bring it to life, uh, you know, as much as we can uh, in the home. And uh, my goal is always to make it joyful for the kids that they're going to be excited about it and want to do it again and again. Like, I think that it's, it's such a tough, uh, so many of us were raised with a Jewish experience that was sort of centered on obligation. And um, I think for my husband in particular, like he didn't have thinking about it as a positive choice and something that you actually want to do is something that's, that's what I'm really trying to, to, to go for. I can see how that's important. And your kids are what, four and nine. Yeah. And so to have it be something that that they look forward to rather than something that feels like obligation. You know that I, I suffered through Hebrew school, so you should also suffer through Hebrew school yeah. experience. And I've watched as my children have grown up and they're, they're teenagers now. And mm-hmm. so they're in the process of rebelling against everything there is that they were ever handed. But it's interesting to watch them rebel with this deep Jewish identity. So, you know, for example, my kids have all declared that they will not keep kosher, but <laughs> Shabbat dinner is incredibly important to them. And in, in the home, you know, of course, they'll, they'll keep kosher if the, if the home is kosher. But to do without Shabbat dinner, I think, would be a total upset of their lives. And they have this, so they have this really deep sense of Jewish identity, right. but they have to find their own way to do it. And one of the things that I, I love watching, and I mean, I believe that Judaism is about discussion and debate and finding your own way. And so I love watching my own children kind of find their own way Totally. Whether it's the same as mine or whether it's different than mine. Totally, totally. And that's kind of the funny thing. It's like, ha, ah, you can't get away. There's no, like, you can invert it and you can, like, bury it, but you can't really get away from it. Right. Oh, you're rejecting my values? That's the most Jewish thing you could do. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, we've got them trapped. <laughs> and I mean, I think, you know, I don't want to portray it as only, like, a, you know, pedagogical effort. Like, I think for um, for Adam and me, like, we do really treasure kind of, Jewish ritual and the holidays in particular as frameworks for 
thinking about our lives, thinking about, you know, choices that we're making and, and things we want to do differently. I think Sadaka is really important for us, like making sure that we're supporting organizations that are um, in line with our values and, and the kind of the world that we want to bring into being. So, um, you know, those are also different areas where I think Judaism really informs us. Uh, so one last question. Mm -hmm. uh, one of one really important aspect of Judaism is books. And so, and, and books matter to you, I know, as a writer, and I assume as a reader. So if you had to choose one book, what book do we all have to read? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's what a hard question. Um, well, can I give you two? You can. I'll allow it. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, I read Alan Liu's book on the holidays almost every year. So, you know, this is... This is real and you are completely unprepared. I think that's that's a good one. Um, uh, I was, oof, I'm really torn because, um, but I'm gonna recommend, you know what? I'm gonna recommend Project Drawdown, the Drawdown book, um, because that's a, that's a book where they really are oriented toward solutions in the climate crisis. And I think that's a framework that a lot of us need now. And it's got a lot of, great ideas and exhortations in it. So that was helpful for me. And who's the author? It's a it's an anthology. So um, but it's Project Drawdown, so you can look that up. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Well, Anya Kaminitz, I want to thank you for your time today for sharing your wisdom and for having a conversation with me. It was so fun, Micah. Thanks for reaching out. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us for the conversation. Make sure to hit that subscribe button or maybe leave us a review. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.